Amen. Such an encouragement to look out across the congregation as we sing familiar psalms and hymns and, and all eyes are up in singing from memory the words of God. Thank you for standing as we turn now our attention to the reading of the sermon text this morning, which we find in John chapter 6, verses 31 through 35. Hear now the word of God. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, how excellent is your name in all the earth, and how glorious are the truths of your word. It is both comforting and wonderful that you have given us your perfect and faithful word, and in it you reveal yourself to us, your people. As we come now to your word, we stand in need of help, and in need of light that we may see more clearly who you are. We ask that you grant your Holy Spirit in full measure this morning to illumine the preaching and hearing of your word and give us ears to hear with understanding. Open the eyes of our minds that we can behold the glory of Christ and know that only in Jesus can we find the bread which truly satisfies and nourishes us unto eternal life in Him. So we come as humble beggars, seeking bread from heaven, and we come asking these things in the glorious name of our risen Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So as we start this morning, we come to the Word. It may be profitable to do a quick review of, of last week's message. As you may recall, we started with a brief overview of some of the distinctive differences between John's Gospel and the other three synoptic Gospels. One of those distinctions being that only in John's Gospel do we find these seven I Am statements of Jesus, which is now a part of our series. And it is here that he identifies for us who he is. In the other three Gospels, we find Jesus asking who do men say that I am, or who do you say that I am? Perhaps, as we covered that last week, it brought to mind for some of you that portion of Scripture we find in Matthew 16 where Jesus asked, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples responded, Some say that John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or the prophets. So then Jesus asked, But who do you say that I am. And Peter, he responds with what has come to be known as the great confession, where he states, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And for this faithful confession, Peter hears from the Lord these wonderful words of blessing and assurance. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I also say to you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So flesh and blood did not reveal this truth to Peter. No, Peter needed just as you and I need spiritual eyes. Spiritual eyes that have been opened by our Heavenly Father in order to discern spiritual truths. This is the problem that the Jews had, as if you recall in chapter 8 that we covered last week. Jesus asked them, why do you not understand my speech to which he also provided the answer? Because you are not able. You are not able to listen to my word. They were not able to listen to Jesus because they were listening in their flesh. They were spiritually dead and in bondage to sin. And as the Jews appeal to their physical lineage in Abraham, Jesus tells them that before Abraham was, I am. Identifying himself as the great I am that I am. The ego I me, the God of Abraham, Yahweh in the flesh standing before them. And so as children of the devil, they took up stones to stone him. But he passed through before they could kill him. And this brings us to this week's text. This I am the bread of God is actually the first of the I am statements in John's gospel. It is both good and necessary as we come to this text that we back up a bit. Let's back up all the way to the beginning of chapter 6. And if you have your copy of the word with you, we will work our way through the chapter today. As we do so, we will see in this text, in this narrative, that Jesus tests his disciples. He also gives the people a sign which provides opportunity to remind them of another sign with which they were very familiar. And then he teaches his people. He teaches his disciples. He provides true doctrine that is hard to receive. Teaching that draws a clear line of distinction between those who have ears to hear and those who do not, between those that the Father has given him and those whom the Father has not given him. He patiently teaches. He points to them to the Scriptures. He teaches them what the Scriptures really mean and reveals that he is the true manna from heaven. For those whose faith is in Christ, who are once dead in their sins and trespasses, but are now alive, the words of Christ are a source of strength. They provide hope, a purpose, and mission. They provide life eternal. But to those who are dead and dumb and blind, His words are too hard. And so even those who were once His loyal followers turn away, never to return. So let's turn our attention now to verse 1 in chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And so opens this sixth chapter of John. After these things, writes John, We need to remember, we need to refer back 
to what was written in chapter 5. Jesus heals the blind man at the pool of Bethesda, if you recall, who in turn goes out and begins to spread the word of this miraculous healing. Also in chapter 5, the discourse from Jesus in which he reveals what is known as the fourfold witness. And he states that that fourfold witness is John the Baptist, the works that the Father has given him to do, and that his Father himself is a witness, and that the Scriptures all bear witness of who he, Jesus, is. After these things, after the word has begun to spread, a great multitude follow him as he travels by way way of the Sea of Galilee. And so he goes up on a mountain and there sits with his disciples. Note the details as we work our way through this narrative. There's a specific geographic location provided, a specific setting, and a specific time of year. This is no once upon a time story. Remember, John has written these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. And he continues. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said, him to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. We see here the practical compassion of Jesus in knowing that the people need to eat. So Jesus turns to Philip, who we read earlier, much earlier in the gospel, was from Bethsaida which was not far from where they were. And he asked Philip a very pertinent question about where to buy bread for the multitude. But it was also a question designed to test Philip. Now, as a local, Philip might have known and had an impulse to know where to buy bread. Philip apparently also knew what their resources were. But does Philip yet know Christ and his power? Is he able to respond in confidence that he is sure that Jesus can do anything, even feed a multitude? Does Philip have the faith that is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen? No, not yet. He responds as you or I might be inclined to respond in the same situations that this 200 denarii denarii, is insufficient for them to buy enough for the crowd. It's not even enough for each person to have just a little bit to eat. And then Andrew speaks up and notes that there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes. And he too doubts and asks, but what are they among so many? And with that, Jesus instructs his disciples to have the men sit down. John notes that there was much grass in that place. Another interesting detail. And we are told that the number of the men was about 5,000. Some commentators would note that if the women and children were taken into consideration, the total number of people needing to be fed would be about 20,000, maybe even more. So picture, if you will, a beautiful grassy hillside here in Hickman County. 
and the entire population of Hickman County gathered in one place, and I believe the, the statistic I looked up, we have about 25,000 folks here in Hickman County. Everybody gathered in that one place to hear the teaching of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe that's hard and too abstract. Have you been, have you been to the Bridgestone Arena when it was packed to the gill? Anybody been to the Bridgestone Arena? I have. It's, it's a pretty large facility, and its total capacity is 20,000. So then, as we consider the scope of this, Jesus takes the five loaves along with the two fishes provided by the young boy, and he gives thanks to the Father. He instructs his disciples to distribute this meager meal to this enormous crowd. Let's think about that for a moment. I suspect that we have heard and read of this miracle so many times that we just let it flow by and never really stop to consider how amazing this is. Picture, if you will, five, five, maybe we'll be generous, five large pita bread, which is probably the type of bread that was in view here, and two small fish, maybe even as small as a couple of sardines, but probably larger. And, and we select 12 of you men to come forward and give you some baskets and say, distribute not to this congregation, not the 10 of these congregations, but well more than 100 of these congregations. And I think it becomes, starts to become more real. And then at the end of the distribution, those 12 men bring back full baskets filled with the leftovers. Wouldn't you love to have been there to witness that event? The people who partook of that miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes certainly did. Because we read in verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the sign Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. The people were so moved and convinced by this miracle that Jesus perceived they would take him by force and try to make him a king. And so Jesus escapes into the mountain alone. Because that was not Christ's mission, was it? He had not come to be enthroned as an earthly king. He had not performed this miracle to win the loyalty of these followers. He gave them a sign to testify who he was. He gave them a sign to reveal to them who they truly were. The sign was given to provide a backdrop and opportunity for the teaching that the people truly needed to receive. As an aside... I'm going to appeal to the congregation again, so listen up. Has anyone been to the Holy Land? I'm looking at Dodie because I thought maybe she did. Um, there where this, this uh, miraculous multiplication of loaves occurred, there is a, a church, a church building that was built in the 4th century. And on the floor in this church is what appears to be a beautiful tile mosaic. Were you able to see this? at the church of the multiplication of loaves and fishes. Um, and so you picture, you know, little tiled mosaics with pictures of all the local animals and some of the local trees and, and, and flora and fauna. And um, I understand there's peacocks and cormorants and cranes and doves and a geese and even a flamingo. And um, 
lotus flowers and such. But right there at the altar, you see on the floor a depiction of a basket of bread and on each side, a fish. And uh, it looks beautiful online. Look it up sometime, if you will. So even after this miraculous feeding, the large crowd had gathered there on the grassy hillside, and, and they eventually dispersed. And so by the next day, after Jesus had performed this miracle, and they were looking for him, he was nowhere to be found. And they make their way. I think, I think this is in a small area there where the, where the feeding at the hill was, and then there's a little trip by way of sea, not across the sea, but just along the side to Capernaum. And they're continuing to look for Jesus, and they eventually find him. And it's here that Jesus begins to elaborate for them who he is and what their true motivations were and are and what they should actually be. And so as we turn our attention to verse 26... We read, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the Father has set his seal on him. The people had just witnessed and partaken of a miracle of astounding proportions. And what do they want? More of the same. Their bellies were filled. There was excitement in the air. They wanted the miracle worker to do it again and again. But Jesus begins to steer them in the direction that is the actual point of the sign. The bread which they ate, though it be miraculously provided is still just bread. You eat, and then it is gone. It perishes, and you will need to eat again the next day and the next. But the bread that Jesus was offering, the bread for which they ought truly to labor and desire, is a bread that doesn't perish. In fact, it is a bread that leads to everlasting life, and Jesus tells them that they should trust in this precious truth, because God the Father has set His seal upon Him. His seal upon Him. Jesus had been given all authority to provide this eternal bread. He had been sent by the Father to do the Father's will. This authority and mission has been sealed to Him by the Father in sending John the Baptist to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and to prepare the way. He had been sealed by doing the work the Father has sent him to do. He'd been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which rested upon him, and by the voice from heaven, which declared, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. He'd been sealed by the testimony of the Scriptures, which bear witness of Christ, who is to come, and who now has come in the person of Jesus. Having heard this, they respond, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. Therefore He said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as as it is written. 
he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see what is going on here? Can you imagine just for a moment the line of argumentation the people are trying to take to Jesus? They are still motivated by their bellies. They remember the scriptures and Moses and the manna in the desert. They remembered that the children of Israel complained against Moses and they complained against Aaron in the wilderness saying that it would have been better if we had died in Egypt where our bellies were full rather than to be taken into the wilderness to die from hunger. They remembered the Lord said to Moses that he would rain down manna from heaven every day for six days, providing enough so that they were able to gather twice as much on the sixth day so that they may keep the Sabbath. They desired for Jesus to be a prophet like Moses who provided their daily bread and all they had to do was take it up and eat. But Jesus here corrects their understanding and says, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Point number one, it wasn't Moses that gave them bread from heaven, but God the Father. Point two, God the Father is now giving true bread from heaven, and that bread is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You would think they would be able to see that this is the ultimate meal upgrade, that this offer is too good to pass up, and maybe they do, because in verse 34 we read, they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Now, some commentators see this word from the people as carrying a note of sarcasm. But I think it can be taken more plainly and at face value. I think in their honest ignorance, they began to grasp that there is a truth, a bread, a food, as it were, that is greater than the daily provision they were originally hoping for. But the teaching needs to continue. Their eyes must be opened wide in order to see clearly what Jesus is saying. So now verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For the Jews who did not believe this, I am the bread of life statement from Jesus, in which he is identifying himself with the covenant name of God, they began to have the expected and necessary response. They murmur. They complain because he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. And so it's time to roll out the personal attacks. 
Is this not Jesus which came down? Wait, is this not Jesus which came? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Who does Jesus think he is? He's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? You're right. And wasn't Joseph a common carpenter or something like that? Yeah, and and he has four brothers, I believe. James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And I think we know his sisters, don't we? He can't be anything special. He's just like us. In fact, I don't even think I want to share the same pew with him. All right, all right, so that's enough for the explanatory drama. But I think you get the point. They were complaining about what Jesus said. They were not understanding who he was. And Jesus is unfazed by this personal attack. And so he continues. Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets... And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And in this passage, not only do we have the doctrines of total depravity and irresistible grace in view, we also have Jesus once again preparing to and indeed actually identifying himself with God, as he quotes from Isaiah 54. It is Jesus that is from God and has seen the Father. It is Jesus who equates his teaching with the teaching of God the Father. And it is Jesus who now repeats the I am statement and further explains it and what it means. Verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness in the wilderness, and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. That bread they wanted, that manna that their fathers ate in the wilderness which came down from heaven was merely a sign so that they who gathered and ate manna daily but did not look beyond the sign to the thing signified, that is Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, died. They are even dead now. So what you need to know, what you must believe is that I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then comes another, even harder truth. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Sometimes truth comes suddenly, and we are unable to process what has just been said. Sometimes... Truth comes that we don't have the capacity to understand. And we ask maybe superficials, but but obvious questions, just as the Jews did as they began to get agitated and strive among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus answers that question 
in a way that not only made the Jews angry, he provides an answer, a teaching, a doctrine so hard to grasp and truly believe, to rightly believe, that even some who had followed him and studied under him for a long time departed and walked away. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. These are deep spiritual words, deep spiritual words that have divided the church in their understanding and meaning. These are deep spiritual words that, frankly, are hard for us to hear and listen to them. As spiritual words, we need spiritual ears to hear them, but we need to take care not to so spiritualize these words that we evacuate them of their meaning. So what does he mean by eating of his flesh and drinking his blood? In Hebrews 2, verse 9, we read, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. This is God. God who took on a body of flesh that in His life He might be the perfect Lamb. The perfect sacrifice. His body was crucified and slain, receiving the just penalty that our sin deserves and satisfying the justice of God and pouring out His blood that our sin might be forgiven. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In this way, we eat and drink His flesh. His flesh and blood are nourishment to our souls. In this way, we eat and drink unnecessary food that is delicious. It is a feast of fat things. The soul is satisfied with Christ as with marrow and fatness. His blood is drink indeed. It is living water, a drink that finally and completely satisfies for he satiates the weary soul and replenishes every sorrowful soul. As we eat and drink of Christ, we believe in him and into him, and he indwells us. There is a perfect union wherein we inseparably partake of all his benefits by faith. To merely gaze upon food does not nourish it has to be consumed to be of any benefit to the body. 
Just as natural food renews and provides energy to every part of the body, so partaking of the body and blood of Jesus nourishes not just the head or just the spirit, but body, soul, and spirit are fed and equipped for every good work. In fact, our appetite to feast upon Christ is such that if we have no desire or delight in Him, if our souls do not hunger and thirst for Him, then all indications are we are dead and there is no spiritual life in us. In order to live, we must abide in and ever desire more of Christ. Do you? Jesus' teaching about His body and His blood constitute a difficult truth. So difficult that as we continue in verse 60, we read, Therefore many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man man ascend where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But here are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray Him. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no man can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Do you also want to go away? Can you imagine a more stunning a more awkward, a more challenging question coming from the Lord. Do you also want to go away? Just like all of these who have left? They hear the difficult words of Jesus. They see their companions and fellow disciples turn away and walk away. And Jesus turns to them, to the twelve, and asks them if they too want to walk away. This has to be a profoundly decisive moment in their training, in their preparation for ministry. And it is Peter once again who responds to Jesus' question. And isn't it most appropriate? This is Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus will build his church. And as I read Peter's response, I don't hear the impetuous Peter or the overconfident Peter. The moment is too somber. Too weighty. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Note Peter's response. He speaks on behalf of the twelve. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believe and know there is both understanding and conviction, both head and heart knowledge. They believe and are sure of who Christ is. And this is the type of faith we must have. The Reformers did us a great favor as they sought to define faith and identified 
its three components, and they named them notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, which are Latin terms corresponding to knowledge, belief, and trust. All three components of faith are required for there to be a saving faith. First, knowledge. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We must first have the knowledge of God and of His gospel, which is found only in His Word. This is what those who followed Jesus were gaining. Knowledge through His teaching. Many who partook of His teaching, who followed Him from place to place and filled their minds with His teaching, must also have believed. They must have ascribed a measure of truth to what He said or they wouldn't have followed. There was an intellectual assent, if you will, as to the veracity of Jesus' teachings. As James writes, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But the stumbling block often comes with this last component of faith, and that is trust. A faith that does not have the component of trust is a dead faith, a two-legged stool that simply will not stand the test. Trusting faith is faith which trusts in Christ and in His Word in any and every circumstance of life. We must place our faith trustingly in Christ, even when, especially when, especially when our eyes and all the counsel of the world tells us to look away. We must believe His promises and humbly repent when we doubt Him. Do you trust Christ and His Word? Do you trust Him and His promises? Do you trust Him with your money, your children, your marriage, your health? You name it. Do you trust Him? And when this trust fails or grows weak, do you repent and believe? This is what we are called to do. In Christ, this is who we are. He is the bread of life. And so as we conclude chapter 6 of John's Gospel, Jesus provides yet another sober truth when He tells the twelve, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. This statement must have shot a piercing arrow of shock into the hearts of the eleven disciples that heard it, and an arrow that hardened the heart of Judas Iscariot. Did Judas feign and shock, shock and bewilderment along with the eleven in order to maintain his charade? Or was his blindness such that he was in possession of a false faith and, and was truly confused and stunned as well? I believe the weight of the scriptural evidence favors the former. Judas never truly desired the bread of life. He never had a genuine appetite for Christ, nor did he trust that Christ's flesh and blood were meat and drink indeed. But there is such good news for those who trust in the Lord. Christ gave himself completely so that as those who completely believe in Him, whose trust is in Him, might have life and that abundantly. As we see the Lord's table set before us, 
we anticipate the invitation. I trust that as we partake of the bread and wine this day, that our spiritual eyes have been opened wide, that we may behold his body and his blood. I also trust that we have heard the gospel and believed it to be true, and that we are daily living our lives in the light of that gospel, trusting in him who is our all and in all. For as we do, we are able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him, for he is the bread of life. And as we trust and believe in him, we will never hunger, we will never thirst, and we have everlasting life in him to the praise of his glorious grace. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, it is with thankful hearts that we consider the words of Christ our Savior. We thank you for that bread of life. We thank you for calling us unto yourself and for the assurance that you will never cast out those whom you have called. And we thank you for giving us ears to hear your truth, that as we hear, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him, that they are words of life, even eternal life. And through these words, our appetite for Christ and his mutual indwelling ever increases. For it is in his victorious name we now pray. Amen.